Hello, this is Duke Robillard, guitar player, singer, producer, songwriter, and you're listening to Talking Blues. Duke, I've never asked you this, but how did you get the name Duke? Well, I changed my look when I was about 19 years old. I was playing in a band in Rhode Island called uh, the Tombstone Blues Band, which I was with for, sh for a short time. And uh, some friends of mine, who, one who was in the band and another guitarist friend of mine you might uh, have heard of, you might know Johnny Nicholas, who's down in Texas now. Well, we grew up near each other. Anyway, my two friends, Steve Nardella, who's also a guitar player, harp player, out in Michigan now. Um, him and Johnny Nicholas were sitting there and they were smoking some pot, getting high. And and I had cut my hair. I had kind of an Afro type haircut. I had long, curly, wavy hair. And I, I had cut it off and just slicked it back. And they said to me, well, now you, uh, you don't look like your old nickname which i'm not going to tell you because i never liked it but uh so now you look like somebody else so we have to give you a new name and so they picked duke we said with your hair back like that you look like duke now you're duke yeah duke you know and uh, <laughs> so i said okay that's great uh I, you know i like it much better than the last nickname you guys gave me so um so that was it and it stuck wow um you're one of the most versatile guitar players I know in the different styles that you play. What style attracted you to the guitar first? Well, the first guitar I heard was when I was really uh, quite young, like five or six years old. Uh, I heard a lot of country music because my uncle played in a country band. He played bass in a country band. They were on the radio every Saturday morning in Rhode Island, a band called the West Tones. And uh, so, uh, you know, my uncle would bring over country records. So I would hear Hank Williams and Jim Reeves and Ray Price and, you know, all of those early country people, uh, the honky tonk style country music. So uh, that was very attractive to me because it had really nice guitar playing in it and nice singing. But really soon after that, rock and roll started. And uh, as soon as I heard Chuck Berry and Little Richard, Fats Domino, Buddy Holly, uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, Elvis with Scotty Moore, all those people, that was really a lot of guitar in those records. And I know I just immediately went crazy over the sounds of, of early rock and roll. And I was, mind you, six or seven. So I decided when I when rock and roll came out, I decided, let's see, in 1950, it must have been about 54, I decided uh, when I was six, I decided that that's what I was going to do. I, that's what I want to do for the rest of my life because I heard... Um, Fats Domino, uh, some of his songs, Ain't That a Shame and uh, Blueberry Hill. I heard the piano introduction of Blueberry Hill 
and I got goosebumps at six years old. My hair stood up on my arm and I went, what is this? What's that? What's coming over me? And I realized that I was actually like just, it became a drug immediately, this music, you know? So, and I didn't know that a lot of that music came from New Orleans. So I was hearing all this new music recorded in New Orleans, like Little Richard and Fats Domino and, and later on, you know, uh, Buddy Holly, uh, you know, from uh, Texas and then all the Sun records, all of that stuff. You know, Elvis, uh, all, and it was all, most of it was very guitar oriented, especially the uh, Memphis stuff, you know, the stuff on Sun Records. So that just, you know, I just said, that's it. That's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I decided when I was six and that I never changed my mind. That was it. My mother didn't allow me to own a guitar uh, until my uncle gave me a, an old acoustic guitar. Uh, but I wanted an electric guitar because this rock and roll was just invented. You know, I mean, it was the most exciting thing in the world. I wanted to learn to play like Buddy Holly and Chuck Berry. That They were my idols when I was six and seven years old, eight years old. So, uh, but I was never allowed. My father didn't care that I would have an electric guitar, but my mother forbid me because she saw Elvis and Jerry, Jerry Lee on TV. And she saw, uh, you know, all of these people, you know, with their gyrations. And she just thought, well, this is like, you know, degenerate music. You can't, you know, which a lot of people thought in, you know, the early fifties. So I wasn't allowed to have a guitar. And that's all I wanted to do was play guitar. All, nothing else. I had asthma when I was a kid. I couldn't play sports. Uh, so I couldn't do the things regular kids did, uh, you know, play, play sports. So I just, I love music anyway, by that time. So I had convinced my father that he had to help me build an electric guitar for, um, a high, uh, a, a eighth grade science project. And I took the neck off the old guitar my uncle gave me and we took the bridge and tailpiece off and we, we, my father must've looked at some instructions on building a guitar. I drew a Fender Telecaster on a piece of wood. He cut it out and put on, figured out how to put the neck on. We strung it up. We, they used to sell uh, pickups. You could add to uh, acoustic guitars to make them electric. And they were called D Armin pickups. They were the first uh, pickups that were made that you could buy separate from a guitar and make your guitar electric. So we bought one of those at the local music store and I won second prize in, uh, in the science fair. So of course my mother couldn't take away my electric guitar because I built it for school. It was a science project. So that's, you know, a week later I was in a band and that's the story of how I started. Wow. So how easily did playing the guitar come to you? really easy. So, I mean, you know, not that I was like immediately good, but I, I learned really quickly and I think I was obsessed with it. And I'm one of those people that, uh, you know, I, I become obsessed with things for certain periods of time, although the guitar never left, I've been obsessed with that and still am. Um, but you know, I, as I grew older, I started to think that, I had done this before and I started to get a feeling like 
I was a guitar player in another life. And hmm. I still, you know, I, it's the best explanation to me uh, is that I did it before. And that's why it came so easy to me when, when I was learning. So when you started your band very quickly after you created your guitar, this would have been a rock and roll band? Yes, an instrumental, mostly instrumental rock and roll band. Like the Ventures, that type of music? Uh, all Ventures, Dwayne Eddy, uh, taking, you know, like Chuck Berry songs and making them instrumentals and uh, songs by, uh, uh, yeah, Dwayne Eddy, the Ventures, any early band, Johnny and the Hurricanes, uh, any of those early instrumental bands. At the age of six, you said, this is what I want to do. Then you get into a band. What? What are, you, what are your goals at that point, other than doing this as being a musician? But, you know, in those early years, did you have set goals about what you wanted to accomplish with music? I never really thought that far about it early on. I just thought this is, you know, it took me, you know, it was several years before I wanted to play guitar. I would teach myself because my brother was 10 years older than me. And when he went to work on Saturday morning to earn money to take his girl out on a date and stuff, or if he was at football practice, I'd be in his room practicing. He wasn't really serious about guitar, but he liked it. And if he played with his friends uh, and, uh, you know, in little bands that would just come to our house and they'd play together, you know, they, they never really had bands uh, that went out and played gigs that my brother anyway, but I, you know, I was just inspired and it was an electric guitar that I could sneak into his room and play because I wasn't allowed to touch his guitar, you know, cause I was just a little kid. And uh, so, you know, it, it was probably not till I was like 10 or 12 that I actually made that guitar in the meantime i had a ukulele my sister bought me a plastic ukulele and i learned to play that pretty quick and uh, then it was just going to get my brother's guitar when he wasn't around and teaching myself he didn't even know that i could play at one time i said let me play a guitar i might have been like 10 or 12 at that point and he said uh, you can't play my guitar you don't you don't know how to play guitar i said Oh, yes, I do. And he, <laughs> yeah, I said, let me prove it to you. And I finally talked him into it. So I took it and I played all the stuff that he played. And I could play, you know, I could play it as well as him, at least, maybe better. And uh, and he kind of lost interest in it. <laughs> you know, his little brother, kid brother, picked it up so easily, you know. so why Why is it that he had a guitar and you weren't allowed to have one? Well, he was older, and but the other, the real truth was that he he was a normal kid. He played sports, you know. He dated girls. He was interested in music. It was just one of the things he did. Me, all I wanted to do was practice guitar and play. That's all I wanted to do at a very young age. So my mother thought it was unhealthy. Plus, she didn't want me doing you know, playing that music that, you know, Elvis and little Richard and all those people, she just was appalled by those people. <laughs> so you pursued this dream and started playing in bands in your, in, in, in your high school. Um, tell me about how that went into becoming a professional musician. Well, 
I had to write a paper on what I wanted to be when I grew up, you know, when I, this is like in the eighth grade going into high school, I had to, we all had to write a piece on, you know, what we wanted, what we saw our future as, you know, and of course I wrote professional guitarists. That was the, the theme. And, you know, um, so I, I knew that's what I wanted to do. I was a little country boy from uh, Harrisville, Rhode Island. I mean, it was very rural when I was a kid where I lived. I mean, I had to walk a long way to get to any of my friends' houses, you know, and it was like, you know, really far away. So, you know, I was pretty much kind of left on my own in a way. And all my siblings were uh, 10, 12, and 14 years older than me. So I was the little kid left behind, you know, and, you know, by the time I was born, my mother was 40. And, you know, she didn't really have any interest. In other words, that was like a mistake, you know. It was like I wasn't planned. They, she, she didn't want to bring up another kid. So I was kind of left to my own devices. <laughs> and so I played guitar and I hung out in the woods and we had beautiful woods property. And, I, you know, I loved it. I love, you know, just being out in the, the woods. The two things I like to do is go explore out in the woods and, and play guitar, you know. And playing guitar and learning guitar, that was mainly off of listening to albums and just copying licks off of that? 100%. Except for watching the few people a little later on, by the time I was like 14, I got to go to a, a dance and see the local rock and roll band who uh, uh, the guitarist is still alive and he still, he claims he has the longest running rock and roll band in history. Uh, and that may be, that really may be true. A band called the Bel Airs up in uh, Pasco, Rhode Island, the next town over from where I lived. And we're still friends and he still plays guitar. So tell me about that young kid who sees this live band for the first time. I mean, did you know that's what you wanted to do? Was oh, that the image that you, you thought you wanted oh, to follow? Yeah. I used to, I used to see every once in a while we'd have a, a, a party at one of my family's uh, places at a lake, a lake house, and they would have my uncle's country and Western band play. And so I'd see them, watch them and listen to the music. I thought it was the most amazing thing ever. And then when I got a little older to see the local rock and roll band and I got to sit in with them. And uh, that was the first time I ever played on a stage. I didn't even know what key I was playing in. I, he said, what key? And I went here, you know. <laughs> And showed him, you know, and uh, it it went well. And, uh, you know, soon after that is when I uh, was already in a band. I guess maybe by then I was already in a band. Uh, but, you know, we hadn't played out or anything. We were just rehearsing and I was just learning. One of the first bands that you're associated with would be Roomful of Blues. I know yeah. that you were in other bands before then, but... When you decided, and I, I was curious to find that 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 band, which I think of as a a band with lots of horns, didn't start off that way. No, it didn't. So I had a couple bands while I was in high school. You know, bands that played, uh, you know, popular tunes, Rolling Stones and Beatles tunes and stuff like that. The Animals. We were big on the Animals, and so because that music was just starting to happen. 
we're talking mid 60s that music was just starting to happen and i realized the how close it was you know and they even played chuck berry songs you know the stones and the animals and so i was you know learning about that stuff and playing in high school but then i started getting i met a few friends in high school that uh had a jug band and they started turning me on to like folk music and acoustic blues and then electric blues from Chicago, like uh, Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, uh, you know, all of those kind of people, uh, Elmore James and Sonny Boy Williamson, Little Walter. And so that music, I went, oh my God, you know, I was just absorbing all this new music. And uh, at that time, those classic chess blues records, they were just coming out. So we'd actually go to the to a record store, uh, you know, like 20 miles away, which was the closest place you could buy, buy blues records and uh, and buy these records that were, were either new or just a year or so old. They were current records, you know, the Howlin' Wolf Rock and Chair album, the uh, Best of Muddy Waters, the Real Folk Blues, More Real Folk Blues, all those albums on all those artists they were new when we were buying them. So it was sort of really amazing time. Plus the Newport Folk Festival, uh, which was just like less than an hour away from where I lived, you know, they started having blues acts at the folk festival. And, you know, I got to see Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters. I got to see uh, Sun House, uh, Book of White. Um, it just, all of the, all of the great early uh, or the ones that were rediscovered. So that was just like, it was all fate. It was just all just laid out for me. You know, I get to go hear these people and I, it, you know, of course, all it did was solidify that this is what I was going to do with my life. It just all happened in front of me. And can you tell me about that connection with the blues at such a young age and seeing these greats? You know, but for uh, a white kid in rural uh, Rhode Island, how were you impressed by that? Or how, how did it inform you? Well, first thing, let me tell you that the very first memory that I have is sitting on the floor when I was in Harrisville, Rhode Island, sitting on the kitchen floor in diapers. I remember this and hearing big band music on the radio as my mother was doing stuff in the kitchen. And I believe I heard uh, In the Mood, which f for the most part is a blues in, in form. And I remember that sound being really attractive to me. And then my uncle would play, uh, you know, Hank Williams tunes like Moving On Over or Mind Your Own Business. I'd hear those songs and I'd recognize there was something similar to that early memory. And this was a 12 bar blues progression. And then when I heard Chuck Berry, same thing again. Then I heard the flip side because my brother would, would bring home all the 45s. I flipped over, uh, uh, I believe it was Sweet Little 16. No, Maybelline. Flip side of Maybelline was uh, uh, in the wee wee hours. That's his first record. In the wee wee hours was a slow blues. And I just got chills. It completely captivated me. And I really didn't know why. 
that all of a sudden, every time I heard a slow blues, it like, I'm talking about 10 or 12 years old, it gave me chills and I flipped out. I didn't know why it was so captivating. But all of, you know, I felt blues music right from the beginning. And I also realized that what Little Richard was doing was also blues, but it was just a different beat. And much of rock and roll was just blues with a different beat. So, you know, I learned to play all of that style of music because I could hear how it was so interconnected. You know, it was really, it was easy for me to just say, this is really all the same music. It's just a different style of it. So, and that's kind of where I started getting this concept of all these different styles that were in the genre of blues or grow out of the genre of blues. You know, so I, I learned early that that swing, uh, country music, rock and roll, and blues were all totally interrelated. And even when I heard Louis Armstrong, he'd play blues, and I, you know, I just to to me, I just figured out early this is all blues. It's just. <laughs> Oh, different styles. There are white people playing it. There's black people playing it. But it, who, who cares? It's all blues, you know. I figured it out really early. So when you decided to bring in horns to Roomful, because all of a sudden that just, I would imagine, complicates the dynamics of a band or even the finances of a band because it's, it becomes a bigger entity. Um, was that ever an issue or was it just you wanted to go after the sound that you heard and that's that was the main priority? Somehow, and at least you can you could ask any of the original members of Roomful Blues. I ended up being like this guru and I would find the records and I'd be so excited about the music and turning everybody on to them. I'd give them records, take these home and listen to this, take these home. And I started collecting 78s. That's what happened when we added the horns. I started hearing, I went from Chicago blues. Then I started hearing B.B. King and T-Bone Walker and Big Joe Turner and realizing that earlier on, there were all these bands with horns that I, because you couldn't really find very many of those rhythm and blues from the late forties records. They didn't reissue them until later on in the seventies, like mid seventies, they started really started reissuing them. There became a new interest in it. And I wouldn't be surprised if Roomful Blues had something to do with that because we became instantly popular as a good dance band. But anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. The, 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 the 78 thing, I'd start going around to secondhand stores, Salvation Army stores. Uh, I even found out that certain bigger record stores would have a basement full of records that were never sold. And they'd be they'd have 78s. I would make deals with, give me, I'll give you 20 bucks to go see what's in your basement. And, <laughs> you know, and they'd, the guy, one of the guys said to me, okay, I keep the 20 bucks or, oh no, he said, you give me 20 bucks. If you come up with nothing, I keep the 20 bucks. But if you come up with a stack of records that you want, I decide what they're worth. So I said, okay, well, for days, I kept going back to Boston to this shop and taking boxes and boxes of 78s out of there. You know, I would beg, I would beg 
people to loan me money to, to just to get these records because it was like this. I found the Holy Grail, you know, I'm finding Joe Turner. I'm finding Jimmy Rushing, Count Basie, Buddy Johnson, Ruth Brown, Amos Milburn, uh, Wynone Harris. I'm finding I'm finding out about what happened that you, you couldn't really find about, out about unless you were black and your parents had these records because they just weren't reissued, you know. They were a, a real rarity at that time. So I got on this mission. It's when I wasn't playing, I was taking buses or trains to other cities. And this is before I even drove. Uh, I, and finding, looking in a phone book, finding record stores, finding out if they had 78s, going to junk stores. You know, I, it, I just, <laughs> I went <laughs> over this stuff, you know. And, and I, I learned so much, you know, uh, I did whatever research I could. I talked to whoever I could that knew about it or played it. I started going to see, you know, blues bands because at that point, you know, they were already playing Newport bands like James Cotton's band, Muddy's band, uh, all these Chicago blues artists, Junior Wells and Buddy Guy, they all would play Boston. They wouldn't come to Rhode Island unless it was for the festival or an occasional concert in a big hall. But most of the time I had to go to the bars in Boston. So I did, after I had a job, when I, when, when, I, when I finally, I'm skipping a lot, but anyway, when I finally had a job and I had some money, then I would take a train on the weekend when I wasn't working to go see these people. I'd go to Boston, go to all the clubs there. I'd take a train to New York from Boston and then I'd walk around all day and then go to see, you know, John Lee Hooker at the Cafe Agogo or Frank Zapper at the Garrick Theater or, or Money Waters at, you know, one of these clubs. I just start going to all of these places. I mean, I was consumed. That was my life. That was it. And it was never going to change. <laughs> Can I ask you, in your early years of watching other guitar players, was there, I'm sure there were many moments, but was there a moment that you could share with me that, that might have just changed the way you played or just taught you something that, that you still hold true today? Well, seeing Muddy Waters live, seeing Hubert Sumlin live with Howlin' Wolf, you know, seeing B.B. King live. I saw B.B. King pretty early. I saw him in the uh, the mid-60s before he was really, you know, before he had a huge hit with The Thrill Is Gone. Uh, I saw him play for 10 people at the Village Vanguard in New York. And I could get close to him and watch him, you know. Uh, so all of these people... You know, I learned whatever I could just by watching him. Buddy Guy, uh, Buddy Guy just blew my mind first time I saw him. I think I was still in high school when I saw Buddy Guy the first time, and I, I, I just couldn't believe it. And he had the, you know, incredibly long cord, and he went out through the audience, and I'd never seen anything like that. You know, it just, just blew me away. When did you think that you had become a blues musician? Uh, I think probably before I even graduated from high school, but I kept it to myself until I started Room Full of Blues. And that was the first band I had at, after room, after uh, high school. 
And by that time, I said, this is what I'm going to do. It's how I'm going to make my living. And I didn't make much money for a long time. But we, I had all these other guys so crazy about this music, too. We were all convinced that we were on, talk about a mission from God, you know. I mean, <laughs> really believed it. We, we lived it. In fact, we even started hiring rhythm and blues uh, people like Joe Turner, um, Red Prysock, uh, still Austin, and Roomful, even after I left, went on still doing this and hiring pe people to, and we would back them up because we knew that we would give them the proper backing and it would sound like the way their old record sounded, you know? So Eddie Cleanhead Vincent, he would play with us all the time and, uh, very often. And Joe Turner, uh, Count Basie's singer, Helen Humes, who was a great blues singer. All of these people just, you know, and they really enjoyed the band. They had a lot of fun playing with us. And we, of course, learned a lot. And uh, then I got to sit in with Muddy Waters after I was in Roomful, for, after we were going for about, the horn band was going for maybe two or three years. I got in, I got to sit in with Muddy and, and that was like, the most amazing experience. It, it was incredible. I can imagine, but can you maybe quantify that? Tell me what made it so, other than the obvious, like f from your perspective, what made it so amazing? Well, first of all, uh, he was playing at a place called Paul's Mall in Boston, which is a small jazz club to a full house. And uh, I went to see him. And at that time, he had Fuzz Jones uh, on bass, Willie Smith on drums, Mojo Buford on harp, I believe at that time, yes. Mojo Buford, Pine Top Perkins on piano, and Hollywood Fats on guitar. Wow. Now, uh, at that time, Dick Waterman was managing us. You know Dick, you know who he is, right? Yes, who is, yes. Yeah. He was managing us, he did for a short time. And um, he wanted Muddy to hear me. So he said, uh, he went up to Muddy and said, I want to introduce you to Duke Robillard. And I was so shy. I wouldn't even talk to these guys. I, I was really shy. So I, uh, he said, I'd like you to have Duke sit in. I think he'd really enjoy his playing. And Muddy said, uh, said to him, you sure that white boy should be up here on my stage, you know? And <laughs> Dick said, Trust me, you you won't be sorry. Trust me. So, so he called me up, and I get up there. I had brought a guitar with me. It was in the trunk outside, so I went and got my guitar, and uh, uh, so I get up and I played with with Muddy, and uh, he really liked it. And so he just kept having me play. I think I might have played the whole rest of the set with him, and uh, and then. I, I, he invited me back to his dressing room and he said, Duke, I don't know who you are, but if I had you and Fats in my band, I could rule the world. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I just, I, I was getting my pants. I mean, literally, I, I, I just, I couldn't even talk, you know, and, uh, you know, which I, I know I could have had the job that night if I even give him a hint that 
I was inter- I would have done that, you know, but I was, you know, my guys all realized that this was going on and they were all, my band was all there with me. So they're going, oh, Duke, you don't want to do that. You play too many different kinds of things. That would limit you too much. I don't know. <laughs> with bunny water so it's awful good you know (laughs) (laughs) but anyway you know i went back uh the next night and muddy sees me and he he called room full of blues house full of blues house full of (laughs) he'd go ah i see duke let's get duke from house full of blue up here so every night i went back he'd get me on stage again you know and then on the final night that we went back to see him. We got there and they started the show and there was another guitar player playing with Fats. Bob Margolin had just, oh. or he was, I saw him audition, you know? So uh, at that point, um, you know, I just, I didn't say anything. I didn't say anything to Muddy about, you know, I'd like to join your band. I was, I was t- totally confused because I was leading a band and leading all these people. And, you know, you know, I was content doing what I do, you know, but of course the thought of being possibly being able to play with Marty Waters was very stimulating. And uh, anyway, that's, that's the way that story went. But from then on, I got to play with a lot of other people, you know, that, you know, buddy guy never junior wells i never played with junior but um when we were backing up big joe turner uh joe turner told me that he said i'm gonna get a tape of you playing and i'm gonna bring it back to t-bone's wife and tell her see t-bone's not dead (laughs) (laughs) what a nice compliment Oh God, are you kidding? Like, you know, I, when I hear those things, you know, cause I was so shy and I, I was sure about the music and I knew that I knew what I was doing, but I was still super shy and kind of a, afraid to assert myself a little bit. But after I got a few of those kind of compliments, I started going, I must be doing the right thing here. <laughs> you know, you know, I, so. How do you, how do you overcome your shyness? Is it, it's just, over time and get building up your confidence still shy but i'm not as shy as i was not anywhere near as shy as i was um that's a good question i don't know i think just doing it and i've also had stage fright my whole life wow Um, and it was seriously debilitating until they finally came up with uh some different kind of drugs that uh I think they call them SSRI drugs. But uh, now for like 30 years, I've been taking these pills that just make anxiety pretty much dissolve. And it has no other side effect and it hasn't hurt me in any way or anything bad to me. But it makes, I still wouldn't be able to get on a stage and sing. I I would just go through stage fright. I, I went to hypnotists, I went to doctors. And until they came up with something, you know, that, that would actually stop anxiety, there were panic attacks, were they, is what it, what they were. So that's made me continue my life as a musician. Did it ever make you wonder whether you could continue playing or not? Oh, yeah. If- I I've almost quit several times. And, you know, like I said, I'd go to I'd go to hypnotists. I, I tried everything that was available 
before they came up with the drugs that they use now, which is, you know, drugs like, uh, I can't remember. The only one I can remember is the one I use, Effexor, which is a common drug for anxiety. But there's several other ones, you know, that uh, I were very common. I don't, I don't, that's the only one I remember because I've never changed it or had to. So I, I can't imagine how one can function when they're so frightened. Was it, is it something that by, by the second, third song you got over it, or is that something you had to live throughout the whole evening? It sometimes I got over it early, sometimes I didn't get over it till halfway through the night, or sometimes I was frightened right till the end of the show. But I was determined so much that to do it because that's what I believed I was born to do. That I uh, I just kept doing it and and. You know, and finally, I found something that worked for me. And one thing is that when I was really anxious on stage, before I discovered the, before the medicine was invented and prescribed, I, what the worst time I had, the more anxious I felt, more people got off on it, on my playing. And I don't know if I played better or if there was just some kind of energy I was emitting because I was full of energy because it was, you know, a horrendous kind of anxiety energy, you know. But, so I don't really know. I actually don't talk. I never talked about this that I can remember. Uh, I talked about stage fright, but not that I had to take uh, medication for it. But uh, So because, you know, watching you on stage, I would just imagine that you would lose yourself in music. But I presume that when you were going through some of the the worst times, you're probably unable to lose yourself in music. You're probably thinking about the anxiety and, and whatever you're going through. Well, it does take away. Although, like I said, the audience sometimes used to think that I was playing better, you know, or something. <laughs> we're reacting to it. Maybe that, that I just had, I was like a, I was like a live wire, you know, it's like I stuck my fingers in a, in a electric circuit, you know, <laughs> that's what it felt like. Tell me about joining the Fabulous Thunderbirds. Was that a difficult decision or was that a really simple decision? Well, it was a difficult decision because I was giving up my own career, but, and I, you know, I was doing well, just playing as a trio at the time and enjoying it. And, uh, but the T-Birds, you know, were friends with Roomful of Blues since before they were popular. Uh, the very first time they came to New England, when they were just playing small clubs, we met, we heard about them and we met them. We went to see them. Actually, they came to see us first. And then we went to see them the next night. Uh, and we just became immediate friends. And uh, we started playing gigs together and we would hire them. Uh, to play with us to open for us or something before they were before they were big and you know we helped them with getting a record contract we, we we just we loved each other's music and we were good friends so at the time by the time Jimmy left you know he just thought that you know it's time to call Duke and that's what he told the band he said call Duke because I'm leaving you know and that's what they did you know Wow. It, it was just a natural step, you know, because we were going in a similar direction in that period, the early 80s. The, 
you know, that roots music, uh, rock and roll, it was based on the blues and that was really popular. And we were all doing well, playing a lot and making recordings. So it was a step up uh, and it was, you know, a, a big thing to re to take Jimmy's place. And uh, of course, it wasn't just me. Kid Bangham also joined along. Uh, we had a two guitar team at that point, which was very good and it worked really well. Uh, it was a little weird and some people uh, didn't like the idea that I was giving up being me to join the T-Birds, but I don't know. It's the time it seemed like the right thing to do. And also the bass player and the drummer were former members of Room Full of Blues mm. and where they started out with me. So, you know, um, uh, it, it, it was natural. I mean, at that time, there were three Rhode Islanders and and two other members from other places, neither one being Texas, you know. <laughs> um, I wonder, and that, you know, what, taking into account your very versatile, and you, were, you said you were kind of heading musically in the same direction, but I wonder if joining for uh, the Thunderbirds changed your musical direction or the way you play guitar in any way? I don't think so, because I think Jimmy and I, of course, Jimmy has a very distinct style. And of course, I had to kind of come close to that because that's where really what the songs needed. And I really appreciate Jimmy's style and his playing. So, you know, I tried to honor him in the band by playing, you know, in that style. Um, I didn't try to mimic him, but uh, sometimes I did certain songs. It was, you know, tough enough. I had to kind of try to play it very close to where Jimmy played it because it was the hit song, you know, mm -hmm. but um, I, well, you know, being anything you do in music has an influence on you. I'm a big believer that whatever you, even if you're not listening to something, if you're just hearing it, and music is everywhere now, so you can't avoid what you don't want to hear. It's just coming at you in every store, every place you go. I used to limit what I would let myself hear. And uh, because I knew that way, I would really progress as a blues musician or a swing guitar player. Uh, uh, so by that time, I was much more open-minded uh, because I was looking to become more successful, get ahead, and eventually go back to writing my own songs and making my own records. Um, so, you know, I did, I was influenced by them as they were influenced by me before they were Thunderbirds, you know, some of them. Uh, so, you know, I think everybody influences everyone else, but certainly uh, my approach to that kind of rock and roll um, I'm sure they had an influence on me. Yeah. So when when you played in the Thunderbirds with Kid Bangham and and um, with Robert Gordon with I believe Jack DeKaiser, does do you become a different guitar player playing with another guitar player? I love playing with two guitars. I is but it can be the best experience in the world or the worst. If <laughs> if the other guitarist doesn't know how to listen and appropriately respond. That's what real music is all about. And if you if you play a chordal instrument, you really have to know how to respond 
to complement what the soloist is doing or the vocalist is doing or the horn player, whatever, whoever, you have to be able to respond instantaneously to the other person. So playing with two guitars, if they're two guitars that are really sympathetic to each other, it's incredible. It's a great feeling, great sound, and I love it. Then you go back to your solo career, and then you establish a relationship with Holger Peterson and Stony Plain Records. Yes. Tell me how that started. Well, um, I had played, I believe it was the Winnipeg, I think it was the Folk Festival. Uh, did they even have a blues festival in Winnipeg? I'm not sure, but it was a Winnipeg festival. And my trio was booked to do a show there. And I, that's where I met Holger. And uh, then I was just making, uh, I had just got signed to Virgin Point Blake, or I was about to. I was making an album uh, of kind of blues rock, a little more song oriented, a little more rock related record. But I also wanted at the same time to make a really traditional blues and R&B album. And Holger really liked my playing and expressed, uh, you know, how much he enjoyed all my different styles. And I'm saying, you know, I really want to do this, this blues R&B album really bad. And he goes, well, yeah, I'd be interested in that on my label if you want to do it and if you can do it, you know. And I, I think I did it just before I signed with uh, uh, Virgin Point Blank. And so... I went in and did it very fast and that's called Duke's blues and still probably my most popular album, either that or the uh, swing album I did with Scott Hamilton. Those are probably my two best selling albums. But um, anyway, uh, you know, Holger loved all the things that I liked and played. And so we got to be really good friends and, then he said, well, you know, I want to make a record. I'd like to make a record on this guy or that guy, uh, Jimmy Witherspoon or Jay McShann, uh, Billy Boy Arnold, uh, Roscoe Gordon. He started to want to make uh, albums with classic blues people or jazz people. And he, he asked me if I wanted to produce them and back them up. Are you kidding? Back up my idols and get to make albums with them? It was like the best thing in the world, you know. So uh, I, that was such a good experience for me. And um, I, uh, you know, I've got have made, I don't know how many albums now, at least 20 or 21 albums for Stony Plain. Might even be more. I don't, I, I've lost track. But, but anyway, we've had a really good run together, you know. And it's neat that you got to work with so many other musicians, like you said, some of your heroes. But what did oh. you learn from that experience? Well, I learned that they were as great as I thought they were and that and that I was the right guy to work with them, back them up and pick the band, pick the musicians to back them up because they all turned out to be really good records. And I'm really proud of all of that. And uh, uh, it even ended up that uh, one year, uh, I don't know if it was the 90s or the 2000, early 2000s, but I I got a uh, Keeping the Blues Alive Award as producer of the year when I had produced so many of the people for for all these record labels, you know, 
Eddie Clearwater, I produced two of his albums also, and also backed them up and used my band backing them up. And uh, this, I'd, I'd have to have a list in front of me because there's a lot of them, and I, it's hard to just recall them all. I, I can't imagine, I mean, I get, I get the impression that you, you've probably made all the albums that you possibly could think of wanting to do. But are there concepts that you, you feel like you haven't done yet? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, they're just slightly different directions of the same thing, whether they be blues, R&B, uh, swing, jazz, uh, and you never know what else, <laughs> you know. I mean, my acoustic album, which won uh, Acoustic Blues Album of the Year, uh, I think it was 2016, um, I had acoustic blues, I had country music, I had old-time music. I even did a version of my old Kentucky home on that. And, uh, and you know, so I, I, I get into, when I decide to do something like that, I kind of get into all of the music from that era and that style that I can, I do a lot of studying and I immerse myself in the music to, to the point where, uh, you know, I, I feel like I really know what I'm doing and how to play it and how to voice everything and make it sound like the era that I want it to sound like. It, that's a challenge and a, a really beautiful thing. You know, for me, it's you know, just about my favorite thing to do. I love recording. I can't imagine that it would have worked against you, but did your versatility ever work against you? Well, yes, in the beginning. Uh, in, in When I left Roomful and I started out on a, as a trio and I recorded my first album for uh, Rounder, Duke Robillard and the Pleasure Kings, uh, there was a lot of different styles within that album, the first album. There was kind of tunes that were really rock. There was tunes that, that had a rockabilly influence. There was tunes that had a jump and swing influence. There's a lot of different things uh, in the songwriting. Um, and that all, all, that's all, all that music's in me. So it's just the valid thing is the way I am. I, I, I can write in many different styles. But they everybody said in the beginning when I left Roomful that they said, Okay, you know you you're playing too many different too many different styles. You're we can't pigeonhole you. We need to pigeonhole you. We don't know how to sell you, and uh, you know that that was always the thing. But there were always enough of an audience that enjoyed me because they knew that when the next record came, it would be different. It wouldn't be just another version of the same thing with different songs. Right. It would be you know a new a new style in some way, or at least a new twist on a different style. Um, I'm curious, um, you also worked with Bob Dylan for a little while. Can we talk about that? Sure. So, so how did that happen? How did you, how did you connect up with Bob Dylan? It's really funny. Uh, Tony Garnier, the musical director for his band, he's been, I don't know how many years, but forever he's been with him. He's the bass player. And I knew Tony from uh, back when I was in Roomful, we used to do some shows with Asleep at the Wheel. And we really liked each other's bands. And we, you know, did some shows together and sat in with each other. We really enjoyed each other. So I got to be good friends with Tony. And, uh, 
a few times when when Bob when a guitarist left, uh, you know, Bob would say, "Who do you think we should call?" And Tony would suggest me, and I guess Bob told me himself that he knew about me from back in Roomful when I used to play in New York in the in the seventies with Roomful. So, uh, you know, they would his office would call me, his manager would say, you know, uh, Bob is interested in you playing with the band and we'd like to have you come down and meet us and, and, you know, just do a little playing with him and see how it, what happens. And, um, you know, I, so I, I, at that time I was so into my own career. I, I just couldn't see, that working for me at that time. So I would, I would say, no, thank, thank you, but no, thank you. At this time, I just am, you know, I'm into what I'm doing. So uh, over the, over a course of like 20 years, I get called like four times. And finally, the very last time they called me, which was back when I joined him and well, well, no, I have to go back a little bit. They called me to for recording one time. Uh, and of course I wanted to do that. Yes, I want to make a record with Bob Dylan. And uh, so I went down. They were starting the session. And Bob decided after they had started that he wanted to have me on that record. So uh, I flew down the next day and stayed there for, I think, nine days. I was recording with them for the Time Out of Mind album. And so uh, then, you know, the next time I got a call, I guess it was to play in the band again, to do do a tour. Uh, and this was, to, I guess, maybe 2015 or 16. So anyway, at that point, at that particular time, things were slow in my business. And uh, I thought, well, you know, as I mentioned to Tony, how many times can you say no to Bob? <laughs> you know, like, this is ridiculous, you know. So I said, you know, I got to go try it out. So, uh, so I went and, uh, and we did a tour. And, um, and it was great. It was really good. And he was very happy with me. I was learning all this material and slowly really feeling confident about it. But then we took a break and I'm not going to get into what happened, but something happened. And he was, the next time we went out, he was unhappy with me and he, you know, we had words and it became uncomfortable for me. So I left and uh, it's too bad because, you know, I, I really did enjoy it, but then again, I'm glad I'm back on my own. And I'm not sure I wanted to work as much as he works, which is almost all the time. Mm -hmm. People don't realize how much he works, and it's pretty crazy. It's it's too bad that, I mean, I got the impression that the, the first part of the tour was great, and nothing really changed in the second part, except maybe him and the way he, he, he saw you. The way he saw me, or I, there's a per, couple personal things, but I'm not going to tell that story. In fact, I'm writing a book just of my whole life, but there are a few chapters in there about that, that the whole thing, my whole experience right. with him. And there's one, I think, kind of personal thing that I, I think 
was what happened, but I, I can't talk about it now. It's, uh, it's just not something I want to talk about on the... I totally understand. How's the book coming along? Well, I tell you the truth. It's been a few years since I've worked on it, but I intend to get back to it really soon. I just, I need more time off. <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking of which, I have read rumors, or I have read um, your Facebook entry that kind of hinted at the possibility of you considering retirement or you even considering that the latest album they recorded was the last album. Uh, is any of that true or? You know what? Before I recorded this last album and did this little last tour I did, I was thinking very seriously on not retiring, but sitting back and just picking the gigs that I really wanted to do. And I still may do that, who knows? But I got very inspired by doing this album uh, that is about to be released in June. I, I got very inspired doing it. And then also I did a West Coast tour, uh, just a two week tour, but it went so well. And so many people came out and it was, the shows was so good. And so many people uh, have written to me and emailed me and said things on Facebook about how much they really enjoyed the show. I started thinking, why would I think about quitting if things are actually starting to get better instead of going the other direction? I do have some physical problems with, I'm having a rotator cuff surgery next Tuesday. But I think I caught it early enough that it's not going to be a problem and it's going to heal pretty quick. So, so with that surgery, um, were you able to play the way you usually play in the studio for the last album and also on this tour? I've learned to play around my problem, the, the old surgery I had. And uh, now this is the other arm I'm going to have the surgery on the other shoulder but I learned to play around it sometimes I get mad that I can't play what I used to play but I play new things that are different and I think they're as musical and probably as good which is it's hard for me to when I know that I can't do what I used to do exactly uh, but the audience responds as much as they used to so I can't play behind my head anymore. <laughs> I can't play 40 choruses behind my head, which I used to do, but I, nobody my age could do that, at, you know, <laughs> at this point, you know. Uh, so I, you don't have to say, I, I, I'm trying to be, I'm trying to go easy on myself and let myself enjoy what I can do, seeing other people enjoy it, you know, I, I give myself a hard time. I'm very hard at myself about that, you know, so it does make me think that, oh, geez, maybe I should just retire. But so it, the worst that could happen, I guess, is that I just do less shows and just do what I really want to do. But when you're a player who's been playing all his life, you can't just stop and then do a gig, you know, two months later. You got to be warmed up. I mean, you know, your chops at my age, I'll be 75 in October. Your chops, you know, you got to keep them up, you know. 
And, uh, you know, and the best way to do that is to gig, you know, sitting home practicing is not the same. I, I wonder how much the thought of the possibility of retiring, and I know you've had some physical problems, but how much of that might have had something to do with the pandemic and, and maybe the fact that you weren't out on the road that much? Ah, I don't really, I don't think anything to do with my shoulder stuff or anything had anything to do with the pandemic. I, I might've got out of shape practicing, you know, cause I, you know, I tell you the truth. It was depressing. I, I didn't, I, I, I like playing. I like performing. I don't really like practicing. I like learning stuff when I'm inspired, when I find something new, but I don't, I don't like, I'm not a guy who sits around trying to improve my chops. I've got chops enough to play what I love to play. And, you know, it just, but the, de it was very depressing during the, uh, the, the pandemic, as far as gigging, I did enjoy the time off. I did a lot of painting. I did a lot of, you know, cooking and uh, a lot of fun things with my wife. I mean, although we, you couldn't really go out hardly anywhere, but you know, uh, most people I know did enjoy some of that time, you know. Did you still pick up the guitar on a regular basis? Well, yeah. But, but you know, if I didn't have a reason to get warmed up or to write a song, um, then it didn't play a lot. I, I, I'm a guy that I have quite a few instruments, not a ton of instruments anymore, but, but I, I'm con constantly working on them. I like to tinker with guitars. I change pickups. I change action. I, I, I do, I'm working on guitars. It's almost the daily thing with me that I'm working and making some change on a guitar. And is that, is that to hear something different or to feel something different? I guess my kind of hobby is making every instrument I meet or own play as good as it can possibly play and sound as good as it can possibly play a uh, sound by making adjustments on it. And, and by doing that, I learn more about the instrument and how it responds and how I can get more out of it. So when you say slow down and maybe do less gigs, what does slowing down in retirement, semi-retirement look like? Is it working on the book and still writing and still recording? That would be the first thing that I would concentrate on because it's, it's way too late. I mean, I mean, I've, I put time into it and I was writing really fast. Then all of a sudden I just stopped and uh, I've got a lot more to say. So, you know, it will happen, but I better get to it because I'm getting old. <laughs> Do you have a title for it? Uh, no, I don't. I, I've I've thought of titles. In fact, uh, I've, I've, I'm still looking for the ultimate title because I know what I mean in the title, but I don't know what words to use to express it. You know, because I think I think mine is an interesting story because. I've gotten so far, I've gotten uh, on a pretty high level as acknowledging my abilities and my talent, but, you know, I, I haven't got to 
what I had hoped to get to a level as far as sales of music, um, although I'm, I'm happy where I am, but you know, when I was younger, let's say in the eighties in nineties, I was still trying to get to a more commercial level with non-commercial music, you know, and sometimes that does happen. Just great music. Sometimes just, you know, it hits a certain point. It's a certain time and people, you know, latch onto it. And once you're at that break over that point, then you, then you are within the, uh, framework of the, what, what do you call it? Uh, I don't know. You've crossed over into the kind of mass media acknowledges you, you know, which, you know, I never quit quite made that level. And I really don't care anymore. I did in the eighties and I did in the nineties. Now I'm just happy to play the kind of music I want to play and that people want to still record it and people want to buy it. You know, I just wonder for that six year old or even the teenage kid who was playing the guitar, the homemade guitar, if you could imagine that the fact that you, at 75, you'd still be playing and, and pretty well consistently and producing albums at a consistent level. Um, it's, it's a pretty impressive life. You know, sometimes people have to point that out to me for me to actually realize it. You know, I mean, I, a lot of people who have that commercial success don't seem to last very long. I mean, there are a few, but a lot of people, you know, they go up there and then they're gone. Well, all you need is one hit to just be looked at as you have reached a certain plateau. Uh, case in point would be, say, like the fabulous Thunderbirds, Tough Enough. Once they had that hit, they had a couple hits. Once they had that hit, it'll never be like it was, but it leaves them at a certain plateau where they're included in the mainstream of popular music. Their name, mm -hmm. you know, like somebody like John Hyatt or Nick Lowe or anybody else that does roots music that had their 15 minutes in the limelight. You know what I mean? Once you, yeah, yeah. you hit that one thing where you, even if you've only had one real hit, it kind of leaves you in a in a place that a, a nice place that you're you you don't get completely forgotten, you know. But I wouldn't say that I feel forgotten at all. In fact, recently I'm starting to really appreciate where I'm at because I've been able to do whatever I want to do, almost whenever I want to do it musically and recording wise and maintain a career at, at this age. You know. My final question is to you is you have a new album coming out, which you spoke about on MC Records. Tell me a little bit about this album. This album, and as I've done another album uh, called Earworms a few years ago, that were sort of similar in the sense that things that I liked and influenced me and kind of made me the player and the musical person that I am. Uh, this is another album in that style. In, in other words, I'm covering a lot of different kind of things, but I've also got some of my own music. And it, it just, I explain in the notes that of the album what, what, where everything came from and why I like it and 
this was, you know, this was important to me because this was early rock and roll. And this, you know, I explained why I did the tunes that I did and even why I wrote the tunes that I, I wrote. So um, it's kind of, uh, it's kind of an album and I could put out a series of these for, I could do 10 albums of a series of, of, you know, this is my musical DNA. It's widespread. It, it's really spread over a lot of different kinds of music in a lot of different periods, in a lot of different genres. You know, it's just really who I am. And I'm still learning and learning new things. And, you know, most recently, the last period of music that I had been studying was music from the earliest point of records uh, back from 1918, 1920, the early 20s, the mid 20s, uh, the early 30s. Uh, early 30s uh, as used to be where my, I never went back before that too much, except for early Louis Armstrong. But now, you know, I, I've been away from it because I've been recording and playing, gigging, but I was really into like some super early kinds of music, like incredible uh, music that were some of the vaudeville kind of blues uh, that were black artists and white artists and white singers, uh, female singers that, that, you know, sing like black uh, female blues singers from the twenties. And yeah, I just find it all interesting how they all influenced each other. And this is when records were just starting. I mean, it's so fascinating. You know, before that you had to hear somebody, you had to go hear somebody live to be influenced by that because you didn't have records. It's interesting. I remember reading a quote, just doing this research where he said, looking back through looking back, I feel I look forward which is basically the music that you've been producing all your life. That's right. The, the, I truly feel like the further you go back, the fur, further you're able to look forward into the future. Not that I do anything futuristic, but you never know. Maybe I will. Maybe I'll hit on something that uh, that that is new. You know, there's not much new out there, that's for sure. Um, there's a lot of people saying that this is new, and it's just a a different version of something that's gone before. But if it's gone before long enough ago, they think it's new. <laughs> you know? Duke, thank you so much for doing this. Um, I've always enjoyed your music. I've always enjoyed watching you play. And it's a thrill once again uh, to interview you. So thank you for taking this time. And I hope your surgery on Tuesday goes well. And I, I hope to read your book sometime soon. Oh, I hope so too. I, I got to get to it. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Michael.